Hear now the word of God. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, as we conclude this precious book, as we see your promises fulfilled right before our very eyes, would you help us not only to see, but also to perceive? Would you protect us from blindness to your word and your promises? Would you... Use your scripture to give us eagerness and holiness and to make us witnesses to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we've reached the end of our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, I hope it's been a quick 48 sermons. uh, And I hope that you're surprised to hear that it's been 48 weeks that we have been in this book. Um, I want to remind you of where we've been and where this book started. This book started in Jerusalem. Eleven trembling men hiding in a room. Eleven terrified fishermen and tax collectors and Levites all wondering what's going on next. What's happening next? What's coming? All of them wondering if they're about to die. And the risen Jesus comes to them and he says, I have instructions, do what I say. And they do what he says and they obey him. And we've already seen it through these men by the power of the spirit. God exploded the gospel out from this one little tiny corner of Palestine into the rest of the world. 
He made cowards into conquerors. He made the pathetic into preachers. He made failures into fathers. And over the course of this book, we have watched as Jesus established his church. He gave us church officers. He gave us elders and deacons. We saw that Jesus established what he intended to be an organized religion. He saw that, that, that we saw that Jesus cares about how his church is run. Uh, we saw that the church, even in the beginning, had difficulties. Church has never been easy. There were growing pains. There were struggles. And when we look at the earliest years of the church, we find out that in the midst of all these victories, that life was not always picturesque and rosy. The church has never been an ideal and perfect people, but it has always been God's people. We saw the gospel spread like wildfire at times, and other times it spread like what looked like molasses. You know, sticking, and not always moving very quickly. And sometimes life is explosive. Sometimes there are times of tremendous change. They happen very quickly. And other times life is ordinary and plodding. Even in the early church, early church, it was like that. So I think we need to get out of our heads this idea that the gospel preaching is always fast and explosive. That church growth is always fast and explosive. Because, see, this book charts the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem out into the world. And it covers 30 years, not 30 days. We have seen that life in the church is sometimes mundane. And it's not always exciting in the traditional sense of the word. Sometimes being in the church involves meetings and councils and handing out food and waiting tables. The life of faith we've seen in this book is this repetition of weekly preaching the word, hearing the word, tasting the word, going home, living out the word, and then coming back to be fed the word again. And it is this cycle and it is a repetition and it is intentionally designed to be that way. We not only saw the gospel spread, but we also saw through the course of this book that the gospel is often rejected. In fact, it seems like it's more often than not rejected in the book of Acts. You have the truly the greatest preachers of all time in all of church history filled with the spirit. And in many respects, this is a book of their failures, but of Christ's successes. But if you had to narrow this book down. In all of its scope, in all of its action, and all the things that take place, if you had to narrow it down to only two themes in the book of Acts, I would suggest, first of all, the first theme is kingdom people. Because Paul is always careful to take the gospel to Jewish people first. And then if they reject the gospel, he takes that same message to the Gentiles. So kingdom people is the first point. The second main theme of this book has been kingdom proclamation. The the idea that, that preaching is exactly how God spreads his word and expands his kingdom. And this book is photographic proof that that's how he does it. And it just so happens both of those themes are summarized here in this final section of our reading this morning. And so what we're going to do is look at both of those themes So that we can understand what the book of Acts has really had to tell us over this last year. And what it shows us as we conclude. So of those two themes, the first one that I mentioned is kingdom people. And I'm especially thinking here of 
the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a major theme in the book of Acts. And I mean that in a positive way. Let me explain. By, <clears throat> by this point in history, Paul had written the letter to the Romans. So by the time our passage that we have read this morning has happened, Paul has written to the Romans. And he almost certainly wrote that book while he was in Corinth. He has never up to this point met the Christians in Rome. And yet he really wanted to meet them. One of the places you see this is in his letter he wrote to them. So I want to read to you just so you see how bad he wanted this moment to happen. He says, I have desired for many years to come to you. That's what he tells the Roman Christians. When I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel. Pray with me that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So, so look at how badly Paul wanted to meet these Christians. How important this moment is. Paul's prayers have been answered. He is there. He is in Rome. He is there by the will of God. And yet his first order of business is not to find the Christians in Rome. The dream of years has been fulfilled and he doesn't act on it. What does he do instead? He sends for the Jews. So if you really want to appreciate why, why would Paul continuously go to the Jewish people first? We have to go all the way back to the beginning of the covenant of grace. And you find that in the book of Genesis. And there we first see the covenant of grace really clearly promised to Abraham and in particular, his descendants. And when, when Abraham is hearing this promise from God, he is thinking of an immediate fulfillment. I'm going to have a big family. He's thinking children, right? I'm going to have lots of kids. And my kids are going to have kids. And their kids are going to have kids. And everybody's going to have my name stamped on them. And so what does God do? He gives him those children and, and these descendants, they explode while they're in Egypt. And then God rescues them out of Egypt and he brings them into the promised land and he gives them their own kingdom. And he didn't do that for them because they deserved it. He, he's constantly reminding them that he's only good to them because he's good to them. <laughs> He's, he's not good to them because they've done something or merited something or because they're a certain size or because they're so important. No, he says, you're important because I did this for you. And so on one level, Abraham has got this promise for physical descendants and Abraham got that in droves. But the real, true, ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham was not physical at all. Because think about this. The book of Acts has shown us that many of Abraham's physical children, physical descendants, don't believe the gospel. They don't believe the very message of rescue that the covenant of grace was promised and aiming at. They didn't believe in their Messiah. And, and what we've seen is that the true fulfillment of the promised Abraham is not a physical seed. It's a spiritual seed. It's those who believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. So Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What an important phrase. But in the book of Acts, over and over again, Paul is always first going to those who descended from Israel. To those who are physical children 
of Abraham. And that's exactly what he does here. Even at the end of the book, even though he could have said, no, this time I'm going to call the Roman Christians first. He says, no, I must do this. And if you have to ask why, you just need to think of the kind of love that Paul has for the Jewish people. Listen to what he says in Romans. He says, he says I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. He, he would rather be cursed than see them go to hell. He says they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. See, the honor that Paul shows to the Jews is sufficient reason for us as Christians, even today, to reject all forms of anti-Semitism. Right? They have not followed, they have not believed in their Messiah, that much is true. One of the truly distressing things that happened in the last few months was this shooting in a synagogue in California, which was bad enough in and of itself, but then we find out that the, that the shooter was none other than someone who belonged to a Presbyterian church. And so this is an in-house issue. This is a family matter. That doesn't mean the person didn't have mental problems. It doesn't mean that he was not listening to the wrong people. He openly said, I did not learn my racist views from my church or from my family. I learned it from the darkest corners of the Internet. And yet even still as a church, it is very important for us to speak on these things when we have an opportunity to. We reject anti-Semitism. We reject violence against anybody but especially not against God's people. Paul says to them belong the promises, the adoption, the glory, the covenants. Jesus is a physical descendant of the Jews. Our Savior himself is a Jew. It's true, they haven't believed in Jesus for the most part. There are exceptions. One of my best friends in college was a Jew who converted to Christianity. Um, And yet what does Paul do? He honors them by preaching the gospel to them. He honors them by speaking of his love for them. He brings them the message that they have waited centuries to hear whether they will believe it or not. But do you know why Paul goes to Rome first and foremost and speaks to the Jews first? Because actions speak louder than words. It's one thing to say, I love my brethren, I love the Jews. It's another thing to actually go to them and actually show your love for them by seeing them first. And Paul does that. If we are Christians, then we should love the Jews. And we should pray for them that they would believe the gospel. Christianity is not an anti-Semitic religion. Everything we are... Everything we have is born out of the root of Abraham and God's promise to him. Our Savior is a Jew. The greatest evangelist in the history of all the church was a Jew. There is simply no place for us to hate these people or attack these people or marginalize these people. There is no reason whatsoever. There is no biblical justification for such evil. It has been a great shame Upon the Christian religion that people have done evil against the physical descendants of Abraham. And many of them have even done it in the name of God. And they have even used the name of Jesus to justify their evil. It is blasphemy. We should love them. They are our neighbors. 
And the greatest love we can show them is to evangelize them. Be good neighbors to them. Share the gospel when we have opportunities. Tell them the most important message in the world. That's exactly what Paul shows us here this morning, making them a priority. It's the importance of kingdom people, which is our first point. Secondly, this morning we see kingdom preaching. See, when Jesus came into his public ministry, one of the things he did was he identified his ministry as a ministry of proclaiming. So early on in Luke chapter 4, he quotes from the Old Testament. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We're told that Jesus traveled around proclaiming and bringing good news of the kingdom of God. Mark 139 says Jesus preached in their synagogues. And see, Jesus doesn't just spend his ministry preaching, but he tells the disciples they're going to be preaching too. He tells them in Mark 3.14 that he sent them out to preach. And later Jesus tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So we've seen over the last year as we've been in this book that the book of Acts has this incredible theme of gospel preaching. And just in terms of public recorded sermons, the book of Acts gives us at least 20 recorded sermons or records of sermons having been preached. That is an incredible number of sermons for a book with 28 chapters in it. And what I hope comes through most clearly is that preaching was important and preaching is still important. It is actually God's plan that his people should meet and have the elder or the elders of the church open the Bible and read the Bible and explain the Bible and then apply the Bible. That is his plan. That is his primary way of feeding and caring for the church. And so in a sense, this is the beating heart of the church of God. If you take away the preaching of the word, if you just fill that time up with activities, if you just fill it up with extra music, if you fill it up with anything else other than the preaching of the word, the, the body just dies. Just like what happens if the heart stops beating. I know it sounds very convenient for the preacher to be preaching about how important preaching is. Um, I used to know somebody who had a very specialized profession, and he would frequently say, this is the most important work that there is. And I would think, eh, I don't know about that, you know. <laughs> and it's very frequent for somebody to say, what I'm doing is the most important thing. Uh, and so it sounds very self-serving <laughs> for me to say this about preaching. Um, but I would just say this. Most of the preachers I know, and certainly this is true of me, I didn't start preaching and then decide... You know, I should really talk preaching up and make sure people know how important it is. Um, In my case, I was converted ultimately by the preaching of the word. Uh, I was converted from darkness to light ultimately by the preaching of the word. And so I knew very early on the preaching of the word was very important, that it was formative for me. Consuming the scripture by sitting under the preaching of the word over and over again for a number of years has a huge impact on you. And so... When I was first converted, about 17 years old, I began to devote myself to preparing for the pastorate. Um, And I wanted to preach precisely because I believed and knew there was nothing more important for me to do. And there was nothing more important for the church than to have a beating and preaching heart that is healthy and biblical. And so I had to trust and I had to believe that there would be some church out there crazy enough to call me and have me 
come with all of my odd quirkiness and my strange hobbies and my Converse tennis shoes. I thought, surely there's some church out there that would take me. And so I thank God every day that he brought me here. Um, But what I want to make clear to you is not to be autobiographical, but to say most of the pastors I know do this because they believe it is important. They do not believe it is important because they do it. Um, we do not say that preaching is important because we do it. We do it because, we, because the scripture shows us that it is absolutely, unavoidably, impossibly important. We do not say preaching is important because we do it. We do it because it is so important. And I want you to know one more thing about preaching. It involves a lot of failure. And it often bombs even when it's faithful. We see it right here. Look, look what happens in the passage. Paul's preaching here. His last recorded time preaching meets with acceptance and unbelief. You know, it's so tempting. You, you, you go, why, Luke, why can't you just end on triumphant? No, why can't you just say that people believed him? Why do you have to mention that there are people who still didn't believe? And the reason Luke includes it is because that's the way preaching is. Um, if it's faithfully done, there will people be people who say no. But if God is gracious, his spirit will quicken some and they'll believe like we see here in the passage. So, so think about this. Paul's partial success here in changing minds reminds us that crowds are not a true mark of faithful preaching. Their absence doesn't indicate unfaithfulness. And their absence doesn't indicate faithfulness, at least not necessarily. We think sometimes of the great evangelists uh, in church history like George Whitfield and John Wesley or Billy Graham. And, and we sort of are tempted to sort of make those moments the high marks of church history and the real indication of faithfulness. And if we aren't watching people stream in, there must be something wrong with the preaching or something wrong with church leadership or something. But we should see those instances of huge visible success as often the exception, not the rule. Faithfulness, we see it here. Faithfulness often means rejection. Haven't we seen that? Paul preaches faithfully, but he gets spit on and ignored and persecuted and imprisoned. Everybody is trying to shut this man up. Preachers need to know this, but congregants do too, especially if you have the disposition that's easily discouraged because maybe you look back with rose-colored glasses as the, at the glory days when every pew was filled. Unfaithful preaching can fill pews. It can fill stadiums. In fact, I am fairly confident there is unfaithful preaching, even this morning, that is filling stadiums. And faithful preaching can often drive people away. It's just the reality. Look what happens here. Paul preaches to the Jews and the text says, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Brothers and sisters, prepare for that reality and expect it. Some will not believe. As we finish this book, I find it remarkable. Paul's final message is his own attempt to persuade his fellow Jews to believe in the Messiah. And for the most part, they don't. And what does he do? He ends his sermon by warning them. He says, he says by not believing, you are fulfilling one of the most discouraging prophecies in all of the Bible. 
When you read Isaiah, you see him, him getting called to be a prophet, and you read the, the first sermon he's supposed to give is this message here. And it is so discouraging. You can imagine Isaiah going, is this really going to be my first, first step out the door? The first thing I'm going to say is something discouraging to them. And God says, yes, go and discourage these people. And that's what he, get, he does. He goes out and what does he say? He says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. And then his final words, the last words that Paul uh, speaks, at least that Luke records here is, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That's it. Paul's, Paul's last words in Acts are words of condemnation and a reminder that the gospel really has moved beyond Israel now. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the book? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here this book ends on this moment where Jesus keeps that promise. Here he is in chains at the end of the earth doing exactly what Jesus said would happen at the beginning. As we conclude, I want to talk a little about what comes next. So this book ends with Paul in chains. At the end of the world. And he remains under house arrest for two years. And ministering and preaching and visiting with people. And yet that's where it ends. By looking at church history. We know a few things about what happens next. It appears after these two years. Paul was exonerated in his trial from any wrongdoing. Released from prison in about 62 AD. And yet that wasn't the end for Paul. He had previously mentioned in the book of Romans. He really wanted to go to Spain. We don't know if he was able to do that. Interestingly, we do see from one church father, his name is Clement, writing in 96 AD, so not long after. This is what Clement said. He said that Paul taught righteousness throughout the whole world and having reached the limits of the West, bore testimony before rulers and so departed from the world and was taken up into the holy place, the greatest example of endurance. So at some point, He may have gone to Spain. At some point, probably two years after being released from prison, Paul was arrested again. We don't know the charges. We don't know why. Once again, he is taken to Rome. But this trip to Rome would not be like the first one. This would be his last journey. Once again, Paul stood trial. Once again, he stood accused and rejected. But this time the sentence was clear. Death. The sentence of death would have been carried out swiftly. He would have been marched outside of the city walls of Rome like his Savior had been for his own execution 30 years earlier in Jerusalem. Historians believe Paul was taken to Trey Fontaine near the third milestone of the Ostian Way. You can still go there today. As a Roman citizen, he would have been entitled to die by the sword. That was considered an act of mercy. It was an honorable death, a clean death. A less painful death. Paul would have knelt before a stone. And the executioner's sword would have fallen on his neck. Ending Paul's earthly journey. By his own account he had been stoned and whipped countless times. In fact he said on five different occasions he had received 39 lashes at the hands of the Jews. He had been beaten with rods. He had been shipwrecked. He had been robbed. 
He'd been attacked by his own people, attacked by the Gentiles, betrayed by false brothers, endured sleepless nights, and he lived with anxiety for the churches all the time. And when the executioner's sword fell, Paul's spirit was finally released from his tired, feeble, beaten, and scarred body. He could finally rest. He had been persecuted as an enemy of Rome and an enemy of God. He had been mocked and whipped. He had spent himself until he had nothing left to spend. And now he could finally rest in the Savior who had rescued him all those years before on that dusty road. And he was able to join the company of the saints, many of whom he had persecuted, presiding over their deaths. But now the very one who persecuted became the one who was received by his persecuted. You can almost imagine the beautiful homecoming that Paul experienced. The book of Acts is a book of surprises. We sometimes forget Paul lived in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. He may have even seen the preaching of Jesus happening. Jesus drew incredible crowds. He was of incredible interest to the Pharisees, of which Paul was one. And from the earliest days of the spread of the gospel, Paul knew one thing. These Christians must be stopped. And if you had told Paul before he knew Jesus that this is how his life would end. An old man in chains at the end of the earth waiting to see Nero bound up because of Christ. I don't think he would have believed you. The plan God has for each of our lives may have twists and turns, sometimes painful, often beautiful, but always full of grace. And when that plan works itself out, it will leave us surprised. But it will never surprise him. He knew you before he formed you in the womb. He knows you intimately and he knows the plans he has for you. And he knows how he plans for each and every one of our journeys to end. The book of Acts shows us that for the gospel to go, for the gospel to move, for the gospel to change lives and hearts, it is going to cost us something. It already cost Christ something, but it's going to cost God's people something to go. It's going to take pain. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take commitment. It's going to mean following the same road that Jesus has already walked. And Paul would tell all of us this morning that when Jesus bids us come, he bids us come and die. Let's pray. Our God, you are faithful and true. You love your church and you always do what is for our very best as your people. Help us to rest in your plan, to listen to your word, and to share your gospel indiscriminately. Would you keep us faithful? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.